you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. For most of the 20th century, Trinidad and Tobago had a population of fewer than a million people. But this Caribbean nation made an outsized contribution to radical theory and political activism. C.L. Lord James and Eric Williams published two of the most important works about slavery and its role in the development of capitalism. Williams went on to become the country's first leader after independence. Their fellow Trinidadian, George Padmore, took on a pivotal role in the struggle against racism and colonial rule. Padmore helped nurture a generation of activists who successfully challenged the idea that Europe was destined to rule the world. Our guest today is Theo Williams. He's a lecturer in history at Durham University and the author of Making the Revolution Global, Black Radicalism and the British Socialist Movement Before Decolonization. What was the social and political context in Trinidad at the time when Padmore was born as Malcolm Nurse? So George Padmore, or Malcolm Nurse as he was born, was born in Trinidad in June 1903. And I think the most salient social and political facts that we have to think about here was that Trinidad, along with the nearby island Tobago, was a British colony and it was a crown colony, which meant in essence that it was governed directly from Britain with no meaningful political representation from the island itself. Uh, And like most Caribbean islands, it had been a slave colony, uh, originally under Spanish rule uh, and then eventually British rule. So enslaved Africans have been transported to Trinidad across the Atlantic. And this trade in enslaved humans, uh, as well as colonialism more broadly, was central to the formation of Trinidad and and to the modern capitalist world as well, as it existed in in the early 20th century when Padmore was born. Slavery was abolished in the British Empire during the 1830s, but this was followed by a period of uh, what was called apprenticeship of formerly enslaved people, and also by the migration of indentured labourers who have been uh, transported from from India. So when thinking about the society that Padmore was born into, we need to think globally, uh, not just about Trinidad in isolation. So, So this was the high age of imperialism, and most of the world was divided between European empires, the largest of which was the British Empire. And Trinidadians, like Padmore, were very conscious of being part of this global empire. So when George Padmore, or Malcolm Nurse, was born in Trinidad in 1903, he was a colonial subject on an island that was ruled by another island that was on the far side of the Atlantic Ocean. And he found himself in a society that had been shaped by histories of enslavement, forced labour and forced migration, uh, and of race and racialization. Trinidad, uh, like much of the Caribbean, was characterised by what's often called a pigmentocracy. And this pigmentocracy was very sensitive to all kinds of shades, mixtures, gradations. Um, So class and race mapped onto each other, often in quite profound ways to determine one's social status. So one of Padmore's childhood friends was C.L.R. James, who later became famous as another Trinidadian Pan-Africanist. And James wrote about the the Trinidad of of their youth, his and Padmore's youth. And he said that racial lines were clear. He said, 
The whites, the browns and the blacks each kept their own company. The best positions were shared very unequally by the first two, i.e. the whites and the browns. And it was on the black as opposed to the brown middle class that discrimination fell hardest. And George Padmore was a member of that class. So Padmore was black. And when he was growing up, he was very conscious that that would hinder his ambitions in Trinidad. Uh, his father was a schoolmaster and he definitely felt like he'd been held back by the racism in Trinidad. Uh, and as a young man, when Padmore worked for a newspaper in Trinidad called The Guardian, he was appalled by the racism that he was subjected to uh, by the editor when he worked there. So that youth in Trinidad was very formative for Padmore in terms of thinking about race as a force that, that structured people's lives. Of course, another big event that happened when Padmore was a child was the First World War. So black people across the world fought for the Allied forces and lots of men in the Caribbean volunteered for the British West Indies Regiment. Now, the men in that regiment were treated pretty terribly. And then at the war's conclusion, there was no democratisation or, or freeing of, of Caribbean society, despite the support for, for Britain's war effort. And then to add insult to injury, Japan, and of course, Japan was a victorious power in the First World War. Japan attempted to add a clause affirming racial equality in, in the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, but that effort was quashed by the Western powers. So understandably, there was lots of disillusionment with British colonial rule, especially in the aftermath of the First World War. And that led to the growth of movements like Garveyism, which was a kind of mass Pan-Africanist movement, uh, and also to trade unionism as well. So the interwar period was really important for the development of Caribbean nationalisms and kind of other radical labour movements as well. So Padmore left Trinidad for the United States in 1924, so in his early 20s. Uh, but he was in Trinidad for, for some of that upheaval of the interwar period. Uh, and he certainly would have been thinking about possible futures for Trinidad and the Caribbean uh, as he left as a, as, as a young man. Anywhere you go, you must meet people sad. They search for employment, none can be had. Anywhere you go, you're bound to meet people sad. They search for employment, none can be had. During the early 20th century, Trinidad and Tobago produced the musical style known as Calypso. It often became a channel for social and political protest. This song by Neville Marcano, known to his fans as the Growling Tiger, tackled the depressed economic conditions of the interwar period. We are not asking for equality to rank with the rich in society, to visit their homes in their motor cars, or to go to their clubs and smoke their cigars. We are asking for a living wage to exist now and provide for all age. Our kind-hearted employers, I appeal now to you, give us some work. Marcano started off asking kind-hearted employers to provide some work for the poor. By the final verse, however, he was talking about the ammunition, cruel laws and jail that propped up the social order. The legislator only quarrel and fret about unemployment but haven't relieved us yet. There is no visions that we can see to take us out from tribulations and misery. We can't fight physically for we wouldn't prevail on account of ammunition, cruel laws and jail. But every man was born to be free from this oppression and tyrannic slavery. (laughs) 
How did Padmore first become involved with the US communist movement and what sort of activism was he engaged in? So, uh, as I've said, Padmore left Trinidad to study in the United States in 1924. And there was lots of Caribbean migration to the United States at this time. There was a place where there were more educational and professional opportunities, particularly if you wanted a, a university level education, that was something that, that you couldn't get in Trinidad. So that's part of the motivation for, for, for Padmore leaving uh, for the United States. He studied medicine at Fisk in Nashville, didn't graduate and uh, instead moved to Howard in Washington, D.C. to study law instead. And it was in 1927, so a few years after the move, that Padmore joined the CPUSA, which, which is the Communist Party of, of the USA. And this is when he adopted the name George Padmore, previously being Malcolm Nurse. This is when he adopted the name George Padmore to mask his communist activities. We don't know exactly how he first became involved in communist activism, but we can make some, some educated guesses. So Padmore already had radical political sympathies uh, by the time he left Trinidad that developed further uh, when he arrived in the United States. And the CPUSA was actively trying to recruit black people during this period. So we can see how the pieces fit together, even if we don't know the precise details. And communism was, was very appealing to lots of black people during this period. So in the southern United States, this was the era of Jim Crow, of segregation, of lynching. And of course, black people were oppressed and exploited in the rest of the country as well. R racism wasn't just a southern problem. And communism promised an alternative. So the communist movement was militantly, unequivocally anti-racist, anti-segregationist, uh, and the Soviet Union promoted itself as a, as a society in which racism was being limited in sort of stark contrast um, to the United States. And the CPUSA also offered an alternative to the more kind of liberal, middle-class National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, the NAACP, and also to the race-first politics of Marcus Garvey and, and his Universal Negro Improvement Association. So the Communist Party occupied a kind of unique space within the US political landscape at this moment, for people thinking about race and class and liberation. United forever in friendship and labor, our mighty republics will ever endure. Paul Robeson was one of the African Americans who was drawn towards the communist movement during this time. He was later cross-examined by the House Un-American Activities Committee about his political sympathies. I learned the Russian language to sing their songs. I wish you would listen now. Mr Chairman, I ask you to direct the witness to answer the question. Just be fair with me. I ask for order. This reenactment of his appearance before the committee has James Earl Jones in the role of Robeson. When I first went to Russia in 1934... Did you make that statement? When I first went to Russia in Did 1934... In Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No colour prejudice like in Mississippi. No colour prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being. Well, I did not feel the pressure of colour as I feel it in this committee today. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave. And my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you. And no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? You are here because you are promoting the communist cause. 
I am here because I am opposing the neo-fascist cause, which I see arising in these committees. Jefferson could be sitting here, and Frederick Douglass could be sitting here. Eugene Debs could be sitting here. Padmore already had experience from his time working as a journalist in Trinidad, and, and that was the skill that he tapped into most importantly, I mean, throughout his career, really, but including as a communist activist in the United States. So he wrote for the Daily Worker, which was the CPUSA's daily newspaper. And he also edited the Negro Champion, which was a newspaper published by an organization called the American Negro Labor Congress or ANLC. Uh, and this was a communist organization that promoted the rights of black people, uh, you know, especially with regard to labor issues. And to return to what I was saying earlier, I think we can see in an organisation like the ANLC part of the appeal of communism. So the communist movement had a sensitivity to the intersections and the interplay of, of race and class to acknowledge that black people, black workers were oppressed and exploited in particular ways. When he was a student at Howard, the British ambassador to the United States, who was called Sir Esme Howard, uh, was invited to open uh, a building at the university. So Padmore and one of his fellow black students, uh, Cyril Olivier, produced and circulated a leaflet criticising the ambassador, uh, lambasting him as a, as a kind of representative of, of the bloated, uh, hypocritical British empire. And interestingly, in, in this leaflet, Padmore also criticised Howard for the role he played in the deportation of Marcus Garvey from the United States to Jamaica uh, a couple of years earlier. And elsewhere in his writings, Padmore called Garvey a demagogue who exploited the black masses. But here he sided with Garvey against the forces of imperialism. So there were some interesting solidarities at play in this action. What role did Padmore play in the anti-racist and anti-colonial work of the Comintern? I mean, Padmore developed a very good reputation for himself when he was in the CPUSA in the late 1920s. And on the back of that reputation, he was recruited to work for the Communist International in Moscow. So I think he was recruited in late 1929 and arrived in, in Moscow in, in 1930, early 1930. And the Communist International, just to be clear, is, is an org was an organisation that was formed in 1919 to coordinate the global communist movement. And it was particularly dominated by the Soviet Union as the place that you know had had as, as a successful revolution. There'd been quite a dramatic change in communist strategy since Padmore joined the movement in 1927. So previously, communists had been involved in united fronts with reformist, social democratic organisations. But then in 1928, the Comintern held its sixth congress. And this congress decided on a policy of kind of uncompromisingly revolutionary, often sectarian politics. Uh, and this was called, often called, the, the class against class policy. And it's the idea that the only acceptable form of communist activity was revolutionary politics of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie. One other thing that happened at this Congress, which is very important as far as Padmore was concerned, was that the Comintern recognised some of the shortcomings of its anti-colonial work and its response to what was often called then the, the, the Negro question, which is in essence what, you know, the question of what black freedom and liberation would look like. So off the back of this Congress, the Comintern committed itself to supporting 
proletarian anti-colonial movements more enthusiastically and also trying to draw those movements into the orbit of, of the international communist movement. And in order to do so, it created an organisation called the International Trade Union Committee of Negro Workers, or the ITUCNW, uh, which isn't the, the, the catchiest abbreviation. But, but it created this organisation, this committee, the ITUCNW, to, to coordinate those efforts. And that was the context in which Panmore arrived in Moscow. So he began working for that committee immediately. And his most ambitious project was to organise an international conference of black workers. So the African and Caribbean labour movements had seen quite pronounced growth during the 1920s. And the Comintern wanted to capitalise on that and, and to direct it into revolutionary communist channels. So Padmore was one of the conference's main organisers, uh, alongside other black communists, members of the CPUSA, like James Ford, uh, Otto Huiswood and William Patterson. The organisers originally earmarked London as the host city uh, for the conference, but the Labour minority government, which was in power at the time, wouldn't let the conference be held there. And if anything, uh, that reinforced the communist uh, class against class notion that social democrats were really social fascists, uh, which was a phrase that was that was thrown around a lot of the time. Uh, the fact the Labour government wouldn't let this black workers conference happen in London. So eventually the conference was held in Hamburg in July 1930. And in the end, there were only 17 delegates. That was partly because of a lack of support from European communist parties, but also because colonial governments prevented delegates from travelling. So in the end, CPUSA members uh, like Padmore and Ford and others uh, played a kind of outsized role in the conference proceedings. After the conference, Padmore continued to serve on the ITUCNW's executive committee from Moscow to begin with. And then in 1931, he moved from Moscow to Hamburg and he became the general secretary of that committee. And he also took up editorship of its newspaper, uh, which was called The Negro Worker. And I think Padmore excelled in the two key functions of that role as general secretary. So firstly, he made use of the research, journalistic, editorial skills uh, that he'd already developed uh, in Trinidad and in the United States. And secondly, through his sort of prodigious correspondence and organising skills, he brought together a network of black activists and intellectuals from across the world, in Africa, the Americas, Europe. Uh, and these were skills that he continued to draw on even after his break from the international communist movement. As he developed his perspective during these years of working with the Comintern, how did Padmore understand the relationship between capitalism on the one hand and racism and colonial oppression on the other? So for Padmore, these things were really two sides of the same coin. Capitalism on the one side and colonialism and racism on the other. So they were inextricably connected, inextricably linked. I think the best way of encapsulating Padmore's political thought is to say he was a Marxist pan-Africanist uh, or a pan-Africanist Marxist, if, if you want to put it the other way around. So the most substantial text that Padmore wrote while he was a member of the communist movement was called The Life and Struggles of Negro Toilers. It's a kind of shortish book, so just over 100 pages, uh, and, and it was published in 1931. 
So for Padmore, the Negro toilers, as he called them, were the most oppressed people in the world. Uh, so he wrote in the book's introduction, I'll just a uh, quick quote here. He said, on the one hand, they are oppressed as a class and on the other as a nation. The national race oppression has its basis in the social economic relation of the Negro under capitalism. So I think we can discern a couple of things about Padmore's theory of oppression from that passage. So firstly, black people were oppressed because of capitalism, meaning that race and class couldn't be disentangled. And secondly, race and nation were also deeply connected. And that meant that anti-colonialism uh, and demands for national self-determination uh, were crucial to, to left-wing practice and activism. And in this argument, Padmore followed Lenin in arguing that imperialism was a stage of capitalism. So Lenin, in his imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, uh, had argued that monopoly capitalism had led to the carving up of the world between European powers, and that these European powers did so because they sought uh, new, new markets and cheap labour. And through exploiting this cheap labour, capitalists created super profits, which could be used, in Lenin's words, to bribe the labour leaders and the upper stratum of the labour aristocracy in Europe. So for Leninists, it was really important to think through what this extraction of super profits meant for the prospect of solidarity between colonial workers and metropolitan workers. And for both Lenin and Padmore, the conclusion that they came to was that it was in the interests of the majority of European workers to fight against imperialism. So Padmore argued that the uh, embourgeoisement of labour leaders through these colonial super profits led them to betray fellow workers' struggles in Europe. And he, he regularly borrowed uh, an aphorism from Marx to encourage working class anti-colonialism. So he said, labour in the white skin cannot free itself while labour in the black is enslaved. Once we think about the relationship between capitalism and colonialism, uh, and if we come to the same conclusion as Padmore, then we have to think about who is the revolutionary subject. Uh, and what we see in Padmore's writing, a repeated reference, uh, as I've mentioned, to, to, to Negro toilers, as he called them. So it's in the title of the book that I was just discussing. And he used this word toiler to encompass both workers and peasants. So he positioned black workers and peasants as a central plank of a future world socialist revolution. That's not to say that he challenged the idea that white metropolitan industrial workers would also play a part in that revolution, but he did want to remind um, some of his more Eurocentrically minded comrades that the revolution would be bigger than that. So I think what we see in Panmore's understanding of capitalism and colonialism is a consonance with Leninism and also a development of Leninism. So Lenin had analysed imperialism in large part to explain its effects on the development of workers' struggles in Europe, and Padmore elaborated on Lenin's theory to understand the effects that imperialism had on black workers and peasants and their struggles. In 1955, Britain's Princess Margaret paid a visit to Trinidad on behalf of the imperial monarchy. A domestic audience watching this newsreel would have gathered the impression that very little had changed on the island since Padmore was a boy. In reality, British rule over Trinidad and Tobago only had a few years left to run. The 
giant BOAC Stratocruiser Canopus lands at Piaco Airport, bringing Her Royal Highness Princess Margaret to the West Indies. The princess, who wears a beige taffeta dress and a small silk hat, is welcomed by Sir Herbert Rance, the governor, on behalf of all the people of the islands Her Royal Highness will visit. Lady Rance adds her greeting. The first duty for the princess is to inspect the guard of honor, resplendent in spiked helmets and shimmering white tunics. A wildly excited crowd, some of whom have waited all night on the airfield, see many of their own folk presented to the princess. Not since the visit of the Queen and Prince Philip has there been such enthusiasm on the islands. Each town or village on the royal route has been gaily decorated in greeting to the petite little lady they have been quick to name the Dolly Princess. Meanwhile, work has been going ahead on Britannia, for it is in the royal yacht that Princess Margaret will tour the West Indies. Badly buffeted by the Atlantic crossing, Britannia is having her paintwork attended to. Why did Padmore ultimately break with the Comintern and the Soviet Union? So this is a very tricky question, and it's a bit of a cliche to say there are two sides to every story, but it's certainly true uh, when it comes to Padmore's break from the Comintern. So Padmore, on the one hand, and the Comintern apparatus on the other, had very different accounts of what happened. And we don't know for sure what happened, but I think the most helpful thing is, is to recount what we do know and what each side said at various points, and then, and then try to assess how plausible each of those stories are. So we know that Padmore's last few months with the Comintern were very difficult. So as I mentioned, he was based in Hamburg. And of course, 1933 saw the culmination of the Nazi rise to power. Uh, so Padmore was arrested and then deported to Britain because he was a British subject. He eventually found his way to Paris, where he continued the work uh, of the ITUCNW uh, throughout the summer of 1933. But clearly his work was very disrupted at that time. So in the August 1933 issue of The Negro Worker, Padmore published an editorial called Au Revoir. And in that editorial, he announced that he was stepping down as editor and he also asked for financial contributions to help keep the paper going under a new editor. A couple of months later, in October 1933, the Comintern sent a report to the CPUSA uh, accusing Padmore of anti-party actions. So they sent this report to the, to the US Communist Party because that was Padmore's home party. The report said that Padmore had expressed in, in, in its words, Negro national chauvinism in the Negro worker. And it also took issue with the way his Au Revoir editorial had, uh, in, their, in their view, a subversive tone and also revealed that the paper was, was struggling financially. And as time progressed, even more charges were brought against Padmore. So he was, he was officially expelled from the Comintern in March 1934. And the statement announcing his expulsion said it was for, and I'll, I'll quote here, for contacts with a provocateur, for contacts with bourgeois organisations on the question of Liberia, for an incorrect attitude to the national question instead of class unity, striving towards race unity, and for not handing over the affairs of the committee on which he had worked. The Negro Worker then relaunched in May 1934 with a new editor and directed some parting shots at its former editor, Padmore. They said apparently Padmore didn't want to stop and teach the white workers and what he really wanted was free colonies, but not free colonial workers. 
Now, if we look at Padmore's published record, not just as a communist, but also afterwards, some of these accusations seem pretty ludicrous. He devoted immense energy to trying to win white workers to the cause of anti-colonialism. And he was also always critical of anti-colonial movements that didn't have a socialist programme. Padmore, for his own part, gave his own version of events in letters um, that he wrote to the uh, US Communist Party in February and July 1934. And tellingly in these letters, he said that he found himself in no conflict with the fundamental principles of the movement. And he pointed to his to his published output to beat back the political accusations that had been flung at him. He also accused the Comintern hierarchy of liquidating, that was Padmore's word, liquidating the ITUCNW without consultation. So apparently also Huizwood, who was another black CPUSA member, had visited Padmore to tell him to shut down the committee. And that was what prompted Padmore's au revoir. Uh, and he then charged at the committee Padmore charged that the committee had been shut down in order not to offend the British Foreign Office. And Padmore elaborated on that accusation in a letter to a friend. So he said in this letter uh, that the Comintern wanted to prioritise Soviet foreign policy over colonial liberation. And he stated, with great prescience, as it turned out, uh, that the Soviet Union's next move would be to join the League of Nations, which it did. After his break with the Comintern, one of Padmore's main priorities was to oppose the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, which began in 1935. Ethiopia, which was then known as Abyssinia, had been the only African country to successfully resist European colonisation. Neville Marcano recorded another protest song about the invasion. He noted the failure of the League of Nations to respond to this blatant war of aggression. The border ran hard it more The emperor had no intention for war That man I call a criminal The man destroyed churches and hospitals He said expansion he really needed He had 45 million heads to feed why he don't attack the Japanese, England, France, or hang on on Germany? The man want to kill King Hilsalazia, to enslave his territory. They began to cry for food and water in that burning desert of Africa. So what Padmore realised was that the Soviet Union was spooked by Hitler's rise to power. It regarded Nazi Germany as as an existential threat. And in response to this threat, was seeking alliances 
with countries like Britain and France. And when Padmore arrived to live in London in 1935, he told C.L.R. James uh, that he'd been ordered by the Comintern to distinguish between democratic imperialism and fascist imperialism. And Padmore apparently retorted that Germany and Japan had no colonies in Africa, whereas the United States was the most racially minded country and Britain and France uh, were the ones with the colonies in Africa. So who do we believe? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that we shouldn't take the communist statements at face value. So as I've mentioned, we, we just have to look at Padmore's published record to refute most of the charges against him. It seems unlikely that the ITUCNW was liquidated, uh, as Padmore claimed, but given that a Comintern official arrived in Paris to discuss the, the financial viability of the Negro worker, I think Padmore's suspicion uh, of suppression seemed pretty reasonable. And again, while I struggle to believe that someone explicitly told Padmore to distinguish between democratic and fascist imperialism during the summer of 1933, I think his correspondence from around that time reveals someone who saw which way the wind was blowing with regard to Comintern policy. And the Popular Front strategy was, after all, formalised by 1935. And, and following that strategy, the international communist movement saw anti-fascist alliances with bourgeois, you know, not just proletarian organisations. And communists did compromise their anti-colonialism in, in pursuit of those alliances. So I think there was a little bit of licence with the truth taken on Padmore's part. But to me, his version of events seems essentially accurate. I think one important thing to note here is that Padmore broke with the Communist International. He didn't break with Marxism or Leninism. And if anything, he saw himself as upholding the inheritance of Marx and Lenin while the communist movement strayed from it. Now, after all, wasn't it Lenin who talked about the importance of supporting anti-colonial movements? Wasn't it Lenin who called the League of Nations a thieves' kitchen? And there's one final thing that I think is important to clarify when discussing Padmore's break from the Comintern. Even after this break, Padmore looked at the Soviet Union with admiration. So he believed that the Soviet Union had correctly dealt with its own national and colonial question. So, you know, i.e. how to transform the former Russian Empire into a multinational socialist commonwealth. And he believed that the Soviet Union was eliminating racism within its borders. The problem, as Padmore saw it, was that the Soviet Union and the Comintern were failing to promote these revolutionary politics on a global scale. What was Padmore's relationship with CLR James, who, as you mentioned, was a childhood friend of his in Trinidad over the course of their lives? I mean, as I'm sure lots of you listeners are aware, CLR James is, is a really important figure in Marxist and Pan-Africanist history. And it's really interesting how James's and Padmore's lives um, intersected. So they were born within a couple of years of each other in Trinidad. They grew up within a few miles of each other. They were childhood friends. One thing we, we have to be aware of when, when we discuss their relationship is that James wrote a lot more about Padmore than Padmore wrote about James. So much of what we know about their friendship is a bit one-sided, but it does seem to have been a reasonably close friendship for much of their lives. So anyway, as, as, as I've mentioned, that they were, they were childhood friends and, and their fathers were also 
friends with one another as well. So the family spent time with each other every summer. Both of their fathers were teachers. So yeah, they spent the summer holidays together. And apparently the main thing that the young Padmore and James got up to was uh, going to swim in the river and talk about, you know, whatever came into their minds that day, which which they did um, almost every day uh, over the summers when, when, when they were young. And at that point, as James himself acknowledged, there was very little to suggest that the pair would become the figures they became and that their names would be so closely associated with each other. And they naturally drifted apart as they got older, as, as childhood friends often do. So they went to different schools. Padmore left for the US. James stayed in Trinidad to begin with and then eventually left for Britain in 1932. And by the time James arrived in Britain in 1932, he didn't really hear much about his old childhood friend, who he knew as Malcolm Nurse, of course. He did, however, hear lots about George Padmore, the famous communist who was organising black people across the world. So when James heard that George Padmore was speaking at a meeting on Grayson Road in London, he naturally went along. And you know, imagine his surprise when in walked his old friend, Malcolm Nurse. So the two stayed up talking all night. Uh, but then, of course, Padmore returned to his communist work in Hamburg and they didn't see each other again until Padmore uh, arrived to live in London in 1935. And, and by that point, he'd broken from the Comintern. James recalled his encounter with Padmore in London when he spoke to Stuart Hall for a television documentary in the 1980s. Padmore and I had known one another as boys, 10 years old in the Caribbean. His father was a teacher, my father was a teacher. They both were friends and they used to meet and speak and we and George and I used to play together. But his father's name was Nurse, Alfonso Nurse. And he was Malcolm Nurse. Then he left and went away. And I in the Caribbean began to read as the years went by and hear about a revolutionary leader named George Padmore. So I, I come to England. I come to England in 1932. Somewhere in 34, 35, I hear that Padmore is coming from America or is going to have a meeting in London. So I go to see the great man. I go to see Malcolm Nurse. And after the meeting, we went somewhere and having something to eat till four in the morning talking. So black political activity in 1935 was focused on defending the independence of Ethiopia. Uh, which was invaded by fascist Italy that October. And James had already brought together a number of black activists in London by the time that Padmore arrived, and the two worked very closely on that campaign. And they seemed to have respected each other immensely. James was a Trotskyist in, in, in the 1930s. Padmore remained more influenced by Stalin, even after his break from, from the communist movement. But both were Marxists and both were principled anti-imperialists. So they were able to work together effectively. So in, in the words of James himself, he wrote that though powerful currents were driving us apart, our common interest in African emancipation kept us together. George and I never quarrelled. And you know, as an aside, this is an example of where it would be helpful to have a fuller record of Padmore's opinions of James. 
So, for instance, we have a record of Padmore referring to James's Trotskyism as nonsense. It's just in passing, he didn't really elaborate on that. So it would be interesting to see you know, how similar to, to James's Padmore's memory of that relationship would have been. But, you know, it seems they, they, they definitely work very closely with each other between 1935 and 1938. And it seems they work together sort of very effectively. It was, it was a really productive activist intellectual period for, for both men. So it was in this period that James wrote uh, World Revolution, which is his history of the Comintern uh, and the Black Jacobins, which is his famous history of the Haitian Revolution. And Padmore also wrote two books about contemporary colonialism in Africa during this period. And outside of that kind of intellectual work, they were involved in all sorts of political campaigns. Um, so about Ethiopia primarily to begin with, but also about lots of other things affecting the black world. So like the Caribbean labor rebellions uh, of the late 1930s. James left for the United States in 1938. And that was originally just supposed to be a short speaking tour, but he ended up staying for 15 years. So James uh, returned to Britain only in 1953, and only then because he was under the threat of deportation. James and Padmore kept in touch throughout that period after 1938, but it was it seems like they were never again sort of quite as close as they had been during the 1930s. And in fact, there's evidence of a bit of tension in their relationship during the 1950s. So James wrote a book about Herman Melville called mariners, renegades and castaways, which Padmore, who, who was the sort of arch pragmatist, thought was a bit of an exercise in navel gazing. Uh, and James got quite upset with uh, with Padmore's reaction. And James had also broken with Leninism by this point. So by the 1950s, he was placing more emphasis on spontaneous revolution and he disavowed the need for a vanguard party. So, in, you know, in response to this, Padmore thought that James's theory of theory of revolution had become too abstract. But in spite of all of this, it seems like James and Padmore never had a major falling out. They always seem to have stayed on more or less friendly terms. And, and I do mean friendly, so that they, they were friends as well as comrades. And James continued to speak very highly of Padmore after Padmore's death in 1959. And he even wrote a, an unpublished biography of Padmore. So James and Padmore were the same age, but James lived for three decades longer. And the world changed massively in that time. So that period between Padmore's death and, and James's death comprised the majority of the Cold War, almost the entire period of decolonization. So James had lots of time to reflect on how the world had changed and the role Padmore played in bringing about that change. And James consistently located Padmore in a kind of pantheon of great, black liberatory activists and thinkers. So up there with people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, Kwame Nkrumah. So James thought very, very highly of Padmore and he always remembered their friendship fondly. James went on to give his recollections of Padmore in his conversation with Stuart Hall. He was full of the African history, Marxism, and I was full of the European history, which he appreciated as something I used to insist that Marxism takes off from where the historians, politicians, and economists of the bourgeois society finish. Their Marxism begins, the political economy and so forth. And Padmore very much appreciated that. In addition to that, he was a very social person. 
a very fine person. He's very good looking, very elegant, and so forth. And a Marxist, undeviating, but ready to talk to anybody. He was one of the old West Indian types. I don't know if you know what I mean. Tell the me old Victorian type. He was one, but a Marxist. And he didn't lose that. The old Victorian, you know, it was easy enough to imagine him in a frock coat and a topper. But he was an elegant person, fine manners, speech, style, sympathetic, friendly, but undeviating Marxist. Oh, yes. How important was the role of Padmore in pan-African anti-colonial networks with figures such as Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana? Yeah, so Panmore was really influential um, in pan-Africanist networks after he split from the Comintern. But one thing I think we need to clarify here is that we need to be really careful about splitting Panmore's career into a communist phase before 1934 and a pan-Africanist phase after 1934, which is how his political trajectory used to be talked about. I think the continuities in Padmore's thought and activism uh, were more pronounced than the discontinuities. So his work for the Comintern was pan-Africanist in its orientation, you know, i.e. it aimed to foster solidarity between peoples across Africa and the diaspora. And his work after breaking from the Comintern was still Marxist, even if it wasn't communist with, a, with an uppercase C. So as I've mentioned previously, Padmore arrived to live in London in 1935. He was kind of immediately thrust into pan-Africanist activism to maintain Ethiopia's independence. So Ethiopia was at that time one of only three independent black-ruled states in the world, along with Haiti and Liberia. So it was a really important symbol of black sovereignty. And fascist Italy had designs on Ethiopia, and this culminated in, in, in an invasion in, in 1935. So Panmore joined I mentioned CLR James's organization, which was called the International African Friends of Ethiopia, and they promoted the, the Ethiopian cause in Britain. Italy declared military victory in May 1936. And of course, Pan-Africanists didn't just give up on Ethiopia, but that movement naturally lost some momentum. So after that, in the spring of 1937, Padmore formed an organization called the International African Service Bureau, or IASB, um, out of the remnants of, of the International African Friends of Ethiopia. So this was a more, the IASB was a, was a more broadly pan-Africanist organisation rather than, than a single issue campaign group. So Padmore was generally acknowledged uh, as the leader of this group, and he was joined by CLR James, by Peter Abrahams, who was from South Africa, Amy Ashwood Garvey from Jamaica, Chris Jones from Barbados, Jomo Kenyatta from Kenya, who, who would go on to become Kenya's first president, Raz McConnan from British Guyana, and ITA Wallace Johnson from Sierra Leone, and eventually by Kwame Nkrumah as well. Kwame Nkrumah from the Gold Coast, now called Ghana, but not until Nkrumah arrived to live in Britain in 1945. So Padmore and the IASB did things like publish journals, organise demonstrations and public meetings, write to the press and, and, and so on. And they were aware that they were a small organisation that, that was isolated from any kind of mass anti-colonial movement. And so what they hoped to do was to, to use their position in the metropole to create links between movements across the world and to promote anti-colonial causes in the heart of empire. 
So they were aware that they had greater freedoms in Britain than their comrades in, in the colonial world. And that's something they took advantage of in their activism. The IESB was, was the most radical black organisation in Britain, but it was also able to collaborate with more moderate organisations like the League of Coloured Peoples and the West African Students' Union. And they also formed links with the wider British socialist movement. So they were especially close to the independent Labour Party uh, and also to the left wing of the Labour Party to a certain extent. They had a more strained relationship with the Communist Party uh, and that stemmed from political disagreements about the Communist Popular Front strategy, uh, which, I, which I talked about a bit earlier in, in relation to Padmore's break from the Comintern. Not every member of the IASB was a Marxist, uh, but every member was, broadly speaking, a socialist who believed that colonial liberation would come through revolution. Uh, and Padmore's leadership of the group meant that their collective statements and strategies were underpinned by the Marxist pan-Africanism that Padmore had developed during his time with the Comintern. And CLR James remembered that the organisation functioned so well because of Padmore's encyclopedic knowledge of Africa and of African politics and his correspondence with Africans in, in all parts of the continent and, and, and the diaspora as well. I also want to mention um, Padmore's partner, Dorothy Pizer, who was really important to um, the IASB's activism. So Pizer was a British Jew who'd grown up in the East End of London. She was already a socialist before she met Padmore. Uh, and she edited and typed Padmore's manuscripts. She translated his work into French and German. She took on work to support Padmore financially. Uh, and she helped turn the flat that, that they shared into an important anti-colonialist hub. So there are stories about the flat constantly being visited by the various anti-colonialists that were in London at any one time. Uh, and Pizer did lots of domestic labour to facilitate that. So I think it's important to mention her because... She's often forgotten when people talk about the more famous men who were part of those networks. And, and Padmore certainly couldn't have done it without her. The Second World War ultimately had a really disruptive effect on Padmore's Pan-Africanist activism. So Padmore stayed in London, but lots of other Pan-Africanists left. And then incidental to anything to do with the war, Padmore had some health problems uh, during the early 1940s as well. But nevertheless, at the war's end, uh, Padmore was the principal organiser of the 5th Pan-African Congress, which was held in Manchester in October 1945. Uh, and that Congress is probably still what Padmore is most famous for today. So many activists in that generation that won political independence for African nations during the 1950s and 60s remembered that 1945 Congress as a turning point in, in the struggle for freedom. And this is where Nkrumah comes in. So Kwame Nkrumah uh, was freshly arrived in London and he'd previously been living and studying in New York and he'd met CLR James in New York. So when Nkrumah came to London, James put Nkrumah in touch with Padmore and then uh, Nkrumah subsequently ended up being one of the main organisers of the Pan-African Congress. And that Pan-African Congress, as I've mentioned, it was, it was called the Fifth Pan-African Congress and it invoked the lineage of an earlier set of congresses, four congresses uh, that had been organised by the black American activist intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois during the interwar period. But those earlier meetings had been composed mainly of African diasporic elites. 
1945 Congress, on the other hand, featured representation from labour organisations and other mass associations and societies. Uh, so Peter Abrahams said the Congress was the first truly representative one. Uh, and Krumer said it was attended by practical men and men of action. Uh, and Padmore called it an expression of a mass movement. And of course, in line with Padmore's political career, the Congress made the case for socialism. So the Congress uh, adopted a document called the challenge to the colonial powers. Uh, and one thing this document declared was we condemn the monopoly of capital and the rule of private wealth and industry for private profit alone. We welcome economic democracy as the only real democracy. So Padmore was a key figure in, in bringing together the activists that would win independence in the post-war period and also for helping to ensure that the Pan-Africanist movement was underpinned by socialism. After returning to Ghana, which was then known as the Gold Coast, Kwame Nkrumah began agitating for independence. Pathé News reported on one of his first campaigning victories in 1951. Accra sees popular rejoicings at the release of Kwame Nkrumah, leader of the Convention People's Party, successful at the recent Gold Coast elections, together with six other men sentenced for sedition during the political strike of a year ago. Headed by supporters dancing with joy, the leader was put into a waiting car in which he began a triumphant progress through the town, the hero of the Gold Coast's first election. Nkrumah went on to become Ghana's first post-colonial leader. In 1958, he organised a conference that brought together activists from all over the continent. Nkrumah urged them to bring the struggle against colonial rule to every part of Africa. Our enemies are many, and they stand ready to pounce upon and exploit our every weakness. They play upon our vanities and flatter us in every kind of way. They tell us that this particular person or that particular country has greater or more favorable potentialities than the other. They do not tell us that we should unite, that we are all as good as we are able to make ourselves once we are free. We want, therefore, to develop our own community and an African personality. Others may feel that they have evolved the very best way of life, but we are not bound, like slavish imitators, to accept it as our mold. We find the methods used by others are suitable to our social environment, we shall adopt or adapt them. If we find them unsuitable, we shall reject them. Fighters for African freedoms, I appeal to you in the sacred name of Mother Africa to leave this conference resolved to rededicate yourselves to the task of forming among the political parties in your respective countries a broad united front based upon one common fundamental aim and object, the speedy liberation of your territories. How did he perceive the movements for national independence that came to the fore in countries like Ghana after the Second World War? Panama was a really important supporter of the Ghanaian movement for independence in particular. 
So he acted as a mentor to Kwame Nkrumah, and Nkrumah returned to the Gold Coast, which was the colonial name for Ghana, in, in 1947. And then Padmore remained in Britain, but was still sort of very interested in making contributions to that struggle. So Nkrumah formed his own party, which was called the uh, Convention People's Party, in 1949. And it was Nkrumah who led Ghana to independence as prime minister in 1957. And then he became president when Ghana became a republic in 1960. So during this period, Padmore became increasingly concerned with steering independence movements away from the influence of the Soviet Union. So he was in favour of a form of pan-Africanism in which an independent and united Africa would be able to escape the binary of the Cold War. And this is an idea that's expressed most fully in his final book, which was called Pan-Africanism or Communism and was published in 1956. So as the title implies, Padmore saw two possible futures for Africa, Pan-Africanism or Communism. And, and by that, he meant Soviet-aligned communism. And given that choice, he favoured Pan-Africanism. That didn't mean a disavowal of socialism or even of Marxism. So Padmore advocated a socialist united Africa. Uh, he still spoke very favourably of Lenin and, and the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. But I think it would be fair to say that Marxism was less central to Padmore's later work than it was to his earlier work. And of course, Padmore wasn't alone in thinking about what a, a decolonized world would look like in, in this kind of way. So in 1955, the Bandung Conference convened in Indonesia, and this was a, was a step towards the formation of the non-aligned movement a few years later. And broadly speaking, what Bandung was about, what the non-aligned movement was about, was the idea that newly independent, decolonizing nations needed to cooperate to make a more equal world free of colonialism uh, and neo-colonialism as well. And that this cooperation would be more effective if it happened outside of the Eastern or Western blocs. So we can see Padmore's Pan-Africanism or communism uh, as part of this Bandung spirit. There's a really interesting letter that Padmore wrote to the African-American author Richard Wright uh, in 1956, and that explains Padmore's attitude to African nationalist movements in, in quite frank terms. And in this letter, Padmore explained that he concentrated on Nkrumah because he was, in Padmore's words, the only one who can apply Marxist analysis to the given tribal situation. And at this point, Nkrumah was in a power struggle with local chiefs. And Padmore, like Nkrumah, was worried that tribalism, as they called it, would undermine loyalty to the nation states and ultimately to a federal African Union. And also in this letter, Padmore said that leaders like Namdi Azikiwe, uh, who soon became Nigeria's first president, were only the Kerenskis. And this is a very interesting reference point. Alexander Kerensky led the Russian provisional government in 1917. So he was in power after the bourgeois democratic revolution in Russia, the February revolution. But then his government was overthrown by the Bolsheviks in the October revolution. So Padmore viewed someone like Azakiwi 
as a step towards democracy, a step towards decolonization, but still only a step. And the job would have to be completed by socialists and ideally Marxists. So Padmore contrasted Nkrumah favorably uh, with Azakiwe in, in that respect. So Padmore was very invested in Nkrumah. And in fact, he moved to, to Ghana in 1957 to act as Nkrumah's advisor on African affairs. His time in Ghana was unfortunately very short. So he died in September 1959. Uh, and then, of course, in 1966, Nkrumah was overthrown by a CIA-backed uh, right-wing military coup. So Padmore died tragically early on during the process of decolonization. And it's difficult to know exactly what Padmore would have thought about later developments, you know, with the rise and consolidation of neocolonialism, the decline of third worldism at the end of the Cold War. But I think it's fair to say he would probably have been quite disappointed uh, with the way that things turned out. Um, so, for instance, after Padmore's death, uh, his partner, Dorothy Pizer, uh, commented, and, and I'll quote here, he lived to have a certain satisfaction in seeing Ghana gain its independence. But he could also see that for many of the erstwhile leaders, the revolution had ended. And similarly, um, CLR James remembered that Padmore, uh, and again, I'll quote here, spoke ironically of nationalist politicians who were satisfied with a flag and a national anthem. African independence did not mean for him a mere repetition of the European experience. So to quickly summarise how Padmore thought about these post-war movements for national independence, I think we can conclude that his priorities were first, that movements should be socialist, should be anti-capitalist. Second, that these movements should be pan-Africanist, so not tribalist or not nationalist in any narrow sense. Nationalism had to be a step towards internationalism, towards pan-Africanism. And third and finally, that movements should be non-Soviet aligned or even anti-Soviet. But likewise, they shouldn't be pro-Western either. So Padmore favoured non-alignment during the Cold War. How would you characterise the legacies of Padmore for the movements and the struggles of today? I mean, I think a way to, to approach that question is to start by identifying the phenomena that Padmore wrote about. Things like capitalism, imperialism, racism, fascism, war. Now, unfortunately, all of those things still exist. They might take slightly different forms these days, and we, you know, we need to be attentive to those changes. We definitely shouldn't think about Padmore's work ahistorically, but his work can still be instructive when, when thinking about those things. And to me personally, what I find powerful about Padmore's work isn't just the analyses of capitalism, imperialism, fascism, and so on. It's the solutions he offers. And that boils down fundamentally to socialism and to internationalist solidarity. So I don't read things that George Padmore wrote and think, you know, I agree with 100% of this, but I think that he was right about the fundamentals. Padmore, like lots of anti-colonialists of that period, hoped that the capitalist, imperialist world would be destroyed and a new socialist world would take its place. It didn't quite happen like that. The counter-revolution happened through things like US-backed regime changes, IMF and World Bank structural adjustment programs. But we also need to think about what those 20th century 
pan-Africanist and anti-colonial movements achieved. So when Padmore founded the International African Service Bureau in 1937, mainstream opinion scoffed at the idea that black Africa would become independent in two decades. I mean, it, it was almost unthinkable for lots of people. Yet two decades later, in 1957, Ghana became independent and so much more of, of the continent followed in its wake. This downfall of European empires was a geopolitical event of, of, of immense magnitude, and it has to be considered a victory for people like Padmore, even if the promises of independence haven't quite been met. As I've said, we still live in an imperialist world, even if imperialism looks different today. But the fact that imperialism does look different, that it's had to change its form, is because people like Padmore defeated the old imperialism. And we at least need to learn from that what worked well and what went wrong if we want to defeat the imperialism of today. If you want to go a dictator, try in the Marara, Venezuela, or Canada, or Austria-Hungary, or else in America. Many thanks to Theo Williams for that introduction to the life of George Padmore. You can also read his article about Padmore on the Jacobin website. <laughs>